0: Good evening. It's Good Friday, and Friday, this is the best Friday ever, because it's the Friday that made it possible for us to be in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to continue our series, What Really Happened, and what we've been talking about really since... Christmas. We talked about Christmas. We talked about Passion Week. Now we're talking about Good Friday. And we're going to say, what really happened? If we put everything in order, we take all the events that we typically look at piecemeal, we put them all in chronological order and work through them, we've got a story. And it really makes things come alive. And so that's what we've been doing, and that's what we're going to do again tonight. So we're going to pick up our story with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, And this is actually where it gets a little bit confusing, because they counted their days different than us. Remember that? Those of you that were here, they did not, in the ancient world, the Jewish people did not count their days from sunrise to sunrise. They counted their days from sunset to sunset. Therefore, Good Friday actually began at sunset on Thursday kind of messes with your mind a little bit. But that's basically what happens there. And so that's what we're looking at is Thursdays we're going to pick up and then we'll go into Friday. Now, it's only fair to say that not everybody agrees on this day. There are some people that think that Good Friday was actually Good Thursday. They back it up a day, and they have some other ways of reasoning that. That became a very popular view when I was in seminary, coming out of Dallas Theological Seminary. They had a big push on that, and it's become very popular. It's one that I very strongly subscribe to and argued for for years. And yet, in more recent years, I have to tell you, I don't see where it ties in. You know, I look at it it has a lot of lot of holes in it, biblically, linguistically, culturally, and historically. For me. So, am I right or wrong? You know I'm right. Right? (laughs) No, because I'm speaking tonight. Tonight I'm right, I guess, because I'm speaking, because I have the floor. But no, there are people that are a lot smarter than me and have a lot better education that will still hold to that view, Um, but we're going to go with the traditional view. and One of the reasons I like this view is because it's the view that's been held by most conservative scholars for about 2,000 years or more, and actually the first three, five hundred years or so, it was unquestioned. Before we even had any denominations or anything, it was just, as far as we know, it was just accepted. And then later, others looked back on it and said, well, we're not for sure, and we've made some changes. You can go back and forth, and I'd love to talk to you about it later, but I'm not going to bore everybody with the details. What's amazing to me is this. We can go back 2,000 years, and we can be off on a day. What difference does it make if we're off on one day? We are so precise. Could we be any more close? 2,000 years ago, we can get that close. And everything else we're going to talk about today, we may have some minor differences in terms of the chronology of it, but we're going to be really close. So let's just jump into it and see what happened. going to be some quotes today, um, and I'm not going to give the references because the quotes are going to mix. They're coming from different sources. So we're just going to tell this as a story. You can check me for accuracy by going and looking at the last two chapters of each of the gospel accounts. Left Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, gnarled, old, olive trees. It was a full moon. They're looking down at this panoramic view from up on the Mount of Olives. They're on their way up the Mount of Olives. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And you look back down, and you have almost this mystical view under the moonlight of the holy city of Jerusalem. And they're gathered together, and Jesus separates from his disciples. He says, you stay here. And he takes Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, with him. And he says, come. And they go into a deeper part of the garden. And he says, I want you to watch and pray with me. This is a very difficult time. And he goes about a stone's throw away. And, uh, and he says this. He begins to pray. And they hear him say, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes on praying. He comes back about an hour later. They're asleep. And Peter said, I'm going to be with you to the end. And so he sort of chides him. He says, yeah, you're going to be with me to the end. He says, what happened? You fell asleep. We may think that's kind of funny, but understand that they had just eaten a full meal. They would had quite a bit of wine, probably, because they had several servings of wine along the time. And they um, had been tired because they'd been setting up all day for the Passover. And so these, are, these guys are tired. And it's nighttime. And they fall asleep, and Jesus says to them he says uh, your spirit the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak and he goes back to pray again and he says "Abba Father or Daddy all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will but you will what you will" and they fall asleep again but while he's praying during this time he's recorded to have had like sweat that was like drops of blood and perhaps the most literal way to read that you know is that his blood really was his his Sweat was really like blood. It really was blood. There are documented cases of people who have gone through extraordinary stress in their lives where their capillaries have burst and their sweat has become mixed with their blood. I'm inclined to think that's probably what happened because I can't think of anybody that went under more stress than Jesus did on that evening. He comes back there asleep again and he says this to them. He says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And sure enough, they could hear them coming up, a mob of people with clubs, with swords. They're being headed up by the temple guard, soldiers that work for the chief priests and elders. And in front of them, like the Pied Piper, is a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. How will they know that Jesus, who Jesus is? I mean, they didn't have television like we do. It wasn't like Jesus was on television all the time. They didn't have, you know, pictures of him floating around. They didn't have baseball cards like we do. They didn't have anything in Jesus. They didn't know what he looked like unless they saw him up close. And even though it's a a full moon, it's a little hard to see in the garden like that. And what if they went and everybody said, I'm Jesus? No, I'm Jesus. They had to identify him. And so Judas said, I'll do that. How are you going to do that? The one I kiss is the man sees him. We think that's kind of strange. Guys don't usually kiss guys in our culture. But in many, if not most cultures of the world, if you're close to somebody, you'll kiss them on the cheek. When I went to Cuba, everybody was kissing you on the cheek. That's why I really wanted to take Clifton there, because I know he likes that. So, <laughs> so, so, there, so in this place, that, that was his way of saying, you know, this, is really, this guy's really close to me. Which is really, isn't that a tragic irony? So he goes up to kiss him, and Jesus interacts with him. And, and in these quotes... There are different things that Jesus said. They're not contradictions. He probably spoke for you know, a couple minutes with them. They, sat, they stood there and they talked for maybe a couple minutes. And we don't know everything they said, but some of the things that were picked up and, and passed down to us is this. He said, greetings, Rabbi. And Jesus said, Jesus, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Friend, do what you came to do. And then after saying that, Jesus turns around and he says to them, he says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And suddenly, it's like somebody grabbed these guys and pushed them all to the ground. Supernatural power. And they fell to the ground. They were just in awe. And then Jesus asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I have told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. That fulfilled his word. He said, of those you've given me, I have not lost one. One. And all of a sudden, there's confusion. The, the guys, his disciples, start getting all emotional about everything. Perhaps they, they thought they had some strength going their way when they saw these guys go to the ground, and they and they started to say, "Lord, shall we strike with the sword?" And and then before he can answer, Peter strikes with the sword. Probably the guy closest to him, and he just whacks it off. They had their swords were like their their swords were, were short. They called them swords. They were more like daggers. When, when those days if they say, are you packing, they meant you had your sword. And most guys carried swords because you had to protect yourself from wild animals and, and robbers and so forth. So he had his sword uh, and he pulled it out and he sliced his ear off. Slice the ear off of Malchus, who was a servant of the high priest. The ear falls to the ground. I'm sure the guy fell to the ground, too. He's probably screaming, and blood is pouring out, and everybody's just kind of staring. You can imagine the awkwardness of this moment. What's going to happen is just like everything freezes. And Jesus says this. He says, no more of this. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And he bends down and he touches the guy's ear and heals it on the spot. And that... The confusion gives everybody an opportunity to run. And they all run. And they can't get anybody. But they grab one guy. They grab one guy. He's a young boy. And they grab him. He's been following Jesus. And in those days, they wore robes. I don't know how old he was. It might, might have been Ryan's age back there. About that age, you know, probably, you know, maybe early teens or something, or, maybe, you know, somewhere in there. And they grab him by the shirt, by, the, by, by his. You know, his coat, his his robe. How's he going to get out? You know what he does? He wiggles on out of there and he runs. He said, I ran away naked. But he wasn't really naked. We have to understand, those days they didn't didn't have shorts. And in those days they didn't have underwear. They had shorts and underwear combined. So it was more like that was what you would wear when you would work, when you'd run or whatever, or it got real hot, you'd wear that. But he just, he he basically lost his outfit. They didn't have a lot of outfits. He lost a whole outfit. And we say, well, who was this? The only person who records it is Mark who we know is younger and we think it may have been Mark when he was just a boy telling about himself, part of his own story being there. The others get away and uh, they take Jesus to the home of Annas and Caiaphas. Now this is interesting. Annas used to be the high priest but they took it away for political reasons and gave it to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So it just shows how fraudulent their leadership was at that time. They were breaking all the rules. rules, Everything was run by, you know, by politics. So these two guys lived together, and Annas is seen as the power behind the throne. They lived in this palatial um, home, estate. I know. I was there. We know pretty much where they probably lived. Ironically, there's two churches there now. And it's up above, kind of looking down on the city. And they took Jesus there. And while they were taking him there, Peter and John kind of regroup and say, let's go, let's go with him. Let's go follow him. And they get to the courtyard and John is able to get them in. And we're like, you know, we look at this, we go, how did John get them in? He's the youngest of them all. He's maybe 18 years of age. What kind of pole does John have with the high priest? Some think he was related. More likely, his father was their fish merchant. Zebedee was a wealthy fisherman, and he was from Galilee, but he also had a home in Jerusalem. And so they probably knew him through business. And so he's able to get in, and he gets Peter in with them. They're going to lay low, right? Don't want anybody to notice. Of course, some people know John, so that's not as big a problem. But Peter has some problems, one of which is that he's a Galilean. And Galileans have a little bit different complexion skin. And Galileans, you know, they're a little darker in skin, and they have a little different accent and Peter traditionally was a large man, and he had a large personality. And he was, had a little bit of trouble keeping it down. And people had seen him and said, isn't that the guy that cut the guy's ear off? And so pretty soon, he finds himself in trouble. And if he would just be quiet, it wouldn't be so bad. But he keeps making it worse. And so three times he will betray to Jesus during this period of time. They took Jesus to Annas first. And uh, Annas asked Jesus, what have you been teaching your disciples? And Jesus said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And suddenly an officer slapped him right across the face. And Jesus said, if I said what is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if I said what is right, why do you strike me? And they're silent. And then they take Jesus in to some of the members of the Jewish council. But there's 71 in the Jewish council. They're called the council of the 70, and one, the other person would be the, the high priest. But they're not all there. They couldn't have been. It's getting late. So what it is is they're, they're bringing in the guys they want. And it appears that while Annas was you know, interrogating Jesus, the other guys were talking to people trying to see, can we get something against, against this guy? What can we get against him? And they kept going through different people and they couldn't find anything. Finally, they came up with an idea and they brought Jesus in. And they said, we have heard that you said, these two witnesses say that you said that you could destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. What do you have to say to that? And Jesus doesn't say anything. He just kind of, I mean, it was ridiculous. That wasn't what he said. So he just kind of said, you know, kind of like we would probably in our culture just go, And that made the priest really angry, the high priest. And this is what he says. The high priest responds and he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? There it is, point blank. And Jesus answers, you have said so, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, once again, there's discussion going on here, and we're just getting a gist of it. But there's not very much of a question that Jesus is claiming that he is the Messiah and even God. He uses the phrase, I am, which was reserved only for God himself. So pretty straightforward. And, And as if on cue, Caiaphas rips his robes, and he says, this is blasphemous. What do the rest of you think? And they said, he deserves to be killed. He deserves to be executed. And they slap him and they hit him and they spit on him. Right around this time, the cock crowed the third time, like Jesus had predicted with Peter. And it may not actually have been a rooster. Because interesting enough, one of the things we learned is that in Jerusalem, they would go up on, at different hours, they would go up with a a trumpet on the walls of the city, or actually in the temple. And they would go up and they would play a trumpet sound. That sounded, I guess, a lot like a rooster. And they used to say, that they they actually say in writings that this was the rooster. You know, the rooster plays. So it's kind of like an Oakdale. We wouldn't know it's 12 o'clock if we didn't have a horn, right? So, So that may have been what it was. But either way, he heard it. And Luke says that he saw Jesus. Maybe Jesus looked through a window and they made eye contact. And how do you think he felt? He was undone. And he ran out immediately and he went out and he wept. Bitterly. There's a knock at the door of the, the gates. There's another person that wants to see Caiaphas and the leaders. And his name is Judas Iscariot. Judas comes in and now he realizes that Jesus is condemned and he feels bad. He did the wrong thing. And so he offers his money back. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they respond, what is that to us? So he leaves, but unlike Peter, he doesn't repent and turn back to God. But he decides to take matters into his own hands. And he goes and he hangs himself. Jesus is um, held until the third hour, which is about 9 a.m. There are actually caves underneath what used to be the estate of Caiaphas. And Carrie and I were there where Jesus was possibly held. We spent some time down there reading scripture and praying with some other brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus was taken out of that location and then he was taken to the palace, which is under excavation. They just discovered it recently and they're excavating it right now just outside the walls of the present, um, the old city of, J- of Jerusalem. And that's where um, Pontius Pilate was. But they couldn't go in to see him because remember the Passover, it's Passover day. Passover day starts when sun sets and Passover day goes till sets again. So you have until sunsets to take the Passover. People took it at different times. Uh, and so, you know, you don't want to go in there because if you spend time with a Gentile, you disqualify yourself from being able to take the Passover even participating in Sabbath because you're unclean. So these guys all stand at the steps and they, move Je- they have Jesus go up to stand on the top with him probably in the doorway. And they say this, they say, um, They say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Talk about twisting things, huh? And so Pontius Pilate asks the natural question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. And then the others continue to yell accusations and Jesus doesn't say anything. And this really bothers Pontius Pilate. So he's never seen this before. So he looks back at him again and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Did you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate exclaimed, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus stated, My kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate says, So you are a king. And Jesus said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate arrogantly ended the interview. What is truth? And he went back and he said, I find nothing wrong with this man. And they said, well, he's been stirring up trouble ever since he started in Galilee. And he said, what, What Galilee? Yeah, he started in Galilee? Yeah, well, then send him to Herod Antipas. He's the guy who's over in Galilee. That's his jurisdiction. He's here for the festivals. So they send him over to Herod, and Herod's really excited because he wants to see Jesus do a miracle. So he tries to get Jesus to do something, and Jesus will not respond at all. So his soldiers start mocking him and making fun of him. They beat him up some, and they take a robe that you would usually wear for royalty, for a king, and they put it around him to mock him. There's some confusion about the color of it. Because in those days, they would take dyes that they would make out of different ingredients, flowers and so forth, and they'd mix it up and then they would make it into a color. And the colors aren't as exact as we sometimes think. And so it's usually described as purple or red in the Bible. And scholars think it was probably either kind of a violet or a scarlet red. Hard to say exactly what the color was. Um, but it was very colorful, what a king would wear, and sort of something to make fun of Jesus. And so... Herod Antipas says, send him back. So they send him back to Pilate. And Pilate and Herod, they don't get along. But now, you know, misery loves company. These two guys become friends. He says, here's my message for you. I can't find anything wrong with him. So Pilate sends back a message. I didn't find anything wrong with him either. I'll punish him and I'll, I'll take care of this matter. But Pilate now is no longer at his palace. He's at Gabbatha, the stone pavement. And that's where he would sit when he would judge people or when he would talk to the people in the center of town. And he went there on special occasions. And it appears that the special occasion was there were two, at least two men that were set to be executed that day. And so as they were preparing for that, Jesus comes back. And he hears this and he figures he's going to take care of this matter. And while he's waiting, he gets a letter from his wife. His wife says, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. He's feeling a little nervous. So he thinks, how can I work this out? And some people come up to him. They say, you know, every every year it's your custom that you usually let one of the prisoners go. So he goes, aha, plan A. This is what I'll do. I will let one of the prisoners go. So he says, hey, everybody. He says, who do you want to have? Do you want to have Jesus? Let him go free? Or how about let Barabbas, the insurrectionist and murderer, go free? And the people incited by the religious leaders say, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Jesus, he's like, well, what do you want to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Now he's got to come up with a plan B. So he takes Jesus back and he prepares him for the crucifixion. They whip him. They beat him. They mock him. They put a crown of thorns on his head that, that we saw the, the trees that they cut those from. They call them Jesus trees now. that dug into his skull. He's full of blood. He's beaten up. And then he brings him back out and he puts the robe on him. And he figures they're going to have so much pity for him now. They'll change their mind. He says, behold the man. Here he is. And they start yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And somebody in the crowd yells out, it's unlawful in our, among our people to call yourself a god. He says he's god. And all of a sudden Pilate says, it's unlawful in our nation to say that you're god. And Emperor the Caesar, Caesar, he's the one who's god. I could get in trouble for this. So he calls Jesus in for one more interview. And he says, "Um, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer him. He says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And finally, the beaten and battered Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This convinced Pilate that he really had to release Jesus. So he tries another time and he says, Behold your king! But incited by the Jewish religious leaders, they start saying, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar's his boss. He doesn't want to look bad to Caesar. He could lose his job. He could lose his life. So he decides this is over his head. So he says, Washes his hands, he says, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And they respond prophetically, his blood be on us and our children. And so Jesus was sent off to be crucified. He carried the crossbeam. In those days, they would usually have another place, where usually a tree that they would put the cross up on. That's what they frequently did. So he probably didn't carry a whole cross, but the crossbeam. And he's carrying it, and imagine all that he's been through, the stress, the blood he's lost, and everything else, the dehydration, the beatings. And he's going down what today is called the Via Della Rosa, which is really just marketplaces. But it was a difficult road down. He's walking down the steep part because so much of Jerusalem's on a hill. And as he's walking out of town, he he collapses. And they look around for somebody else, and a man happens to be there just coming into town, Simon of Sereni. That's from North Africa. He's an African man. And he doesn't even know what's going on. And they said, hey, big guy, probably kind of a husky guy, come on over here and carry this cross. But we're told later that his name was Simon, and not only was his name Simon, but he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why is that important? Because why would they put it in the Bible unless people that were reading it knew who these people were? We do believe that Simon and his boys very likely came to know Christ, personally, spiritually, because of this event. As Jesus stumbles along, he looks behind him, and he sees that there are all these women lamenting and mourning. And uh, he turns to them, and he says, "Um, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed.' He goes on to say that they will want mountains to fall on them and hills to hide them. They go to Golgotha, which in Aramaic, the common language of the Jews at the time, means the place of the skull. We went to a place that's actually like on a, almost like a parking lot near the guard, one garden tomb where Jesus very well could have been buried. We're not for sure which one for sure, but it certainly looks like Golgotha describes it like a place of a skull, and that most believe that that is where he was actually crucified. And they take him there, um, and when they get there, they offer him wine drinks with, mixed with gall, and he doesn't want to drink it. And then they divide his clothes, and, and Jesus had a seamless tunic. Inside, underneath his, his robe, he had this tunic that was attached, and that was very rare. Somebody must have given to him. It was actually pretty valuable. And so they began to cast lots for it. They began to gamble for his clothes, which fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22. And they sat and they watched And some people, and and there's a lot of traction these days, people will say, you know, we are so mild-mannered about the way we describe Jesus, if we understood that he was actually naked on a cross, and how embarrassing, how shameful that was. It's true, the Romans uh, crucified people naked. But you never would crucify a man naked in, in Judea. That was like calling out war. The Judeans were very, very against that, as we know from the Old Testament. So you would not do that unless you wanted to start a mob riot. And so in all likelihood, he had on the shorts or the underwear type clothing that we talked about earlier with Mark, and he's hanging on the cross. There's a sign that is above it that says, uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was put there in Latin, in Aramaic and Greek, by Pontius Pilate, and the Jewish religious, religious leaders went to him, and they said, you, you can't do that. That's what he said about himself. That's not what was really true. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And so it was there. Two others were crucified with him, like we said. There was a crucifixion day, but he gets put in the middle. He's the center of attention. And they begin to both speak about him derisively. And these are some of the things other people were saying as they were coming by. They would say to him, You who would destroy the temple in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests and leaders mocked him and they said, They said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires for him to, for he said, I am the son of God. And shortly after that, Jesus responds in this way. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And one of the men next to him is just so overwhelmed. One of the men being crucified. And he changes his tone and he speaks to the other man and he says, "Um, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of, con- of condemnation, and we indeed justy, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns and says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And standing there in front of him was his mother, Mary. And near her, probably next to her, was her sister Salome, uh, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. And then uh, Mary, the, the, the wife of Clopas, was there. The son, yeah, the wife of Clopas and also Mary Magdalene. And it appears that Jesus' one disciple stayed. Of all of his disciples, only one stayed. The beloved disciple Paul John, whose mother Salome is there. And he appears to be standing next to Jesus' mother Mary. And Jesus looks down struggling in the pain that he's in, he looks down and he says, woman, behold your son. And he looks to John and he says, behold your mother. And John will take her home and take care of her for the rest of her life. Darkness comes on the earth from the sixth hour about noon till the ninth hour or 3 p.m. It was not an eclipse. You don't have an eclipse after a full moon. This was supernatural, supernatural, To the Jews, it was a sign of the end times. It was a sign of mourning and grief um, and lament and judgment. And Jesus calls out in his common language of Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, nima sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the bystanders thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One brought him, put a sponge of wine and tried to give it to him. And the other said, let's wait and see if anything happens, if anybody comes. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which was absolutely extraordinary. People did not die quickly on the cross. That was the whole purpose of it. Jesus called his own shots. When it was time and it had been accomplished, he said, It's over. I'm done. And he finished it. And at the same time, the immense thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple from all others, showing us that we don't have access to God, suddenly was split from top to bottom, and there was access. There was earthquake, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and people who were godly men and women were suddenly seen walking among the streets of Jerusalem. The hardened centurion, a Roman officer who oversaw everything, praised God and said, Surely this man was innocent. Truly this was the son of God. And meanwhile the crowds were convicted. They, they felt bad. It was like the show is over now. And everybody got quiet. And they walked away. And some of them were actually beating their chests in, in grief. Because they felt so horrible about what they had just seen and experienced. Jesus died at 3 p.m. that afternoon. That's significant because... Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that that was the time for the evening sacrifice. That was when they sacrificed the lamb. Also, given that it was Passover day, uh, it appears that they were still sacrificing the lamb that day. So either way you look at it, Jesus was basically sacrificed as the Passover lamb that day for us. Think about that. The timing is just uncanny. And since it was nearing the time of Sabbath, the Jewish people asked that they could break the legs of the men because they wanted to make sure they got them buried and out of the way before the Sabbath began because they couldn't do it that day. And so they went around, they broke their legs, but when they went to Jesus, they, they said, he's dead. And so one of them took a spear and they put it in his side and blood and water poured out showing that he had died of a heart attack. I like to say he died of a broken heart. There was a man from a little village called Arimathea. He was a rich man. And he came to talk to the governor, Pontius Pilate. His name was Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish council. He was a man of high standing and very highly respected and he was secretly a follower of Jesus Christ. It appears that he had not been consulted because he had not cast his vote, so to speak, against Jesus. They had kept him out of the loop, probably because they suspected his sympathy. But he came now and courageously, asked for the body that he might bury it in the new tomb that he had that was nearby. And Pilate couldn't believe he was dead. He actually had to call for the centurion to make sure, is he really dead? And when he found out that he was, he said, go ahead, you can have the body. And so he went and he took the body um, and he had another man come with him and his name was Nicodemus. Yes, he was the great teacher of Israel, the same man that Jesus had once told, you must be born again. And he too had become a follower. They bought a shroud and they wrapped Jesus in it and they prepared his body as you would a king or a wealthy, famous person. They put 75 pounds of spices on the body. It'd be impossible to get out, even if he was still alive. You know, He'd be so beaten up. And so they wrapped and wrapped and wrapped him and then they took him and they laid him in the tomb. And the ladies, it appears that John had taken Mary home, Jesus' mother, but Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You ever get the feeling a lot of people were named Mary in those days? Um, they were watching so that they knew exactly where it was and so they knew where they could come back after the Sabbath to bring spices and to bring, you know, spend some time with Jesus' body and to mourn his loss. Meanwhile, the Jewish religious leaders came to Pontius Pilate one more time and they said, this man said that he would be raised in three days. You need to put some kind of, can we, can we put some kind of guard around this tomb to make sure his disciples don't try to take him? So Pilate says, yeah, go ahead, do that. Take, you have a guard, take it. So it appears they took the Roman guard with them and they went back to um, the tomb. They put a Roman seal on it, which means you're not allowed to break it or it's punishable by death. And the guards stood around it and darkness settled in. But there would be a, quite a bit of light in a few days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Good Friday. And thank you for how it, it puts us on the threshold of Resurrection Sunday. Help us to be very thoughtful of that tomorrow and help our hearts um, to really be where they need to be. It's not like one day makes a difference. Every day, in in a sense, should be lived really like it's Resurrection Sunday because you've resurrected for all time's sake. Uh, But I do pray that we'd be more thoughtful of that this season, that it would maybe ignite us um, and light us up uh, for the rest of the year.